Okay, so um, we are back now as summer's drawing to a close in our series on 1 Corinthians. And so if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 12, uh, 12 through 20. Um, it has been said that preaching on sex is like walking through a minefield in snowshoes blindfolded. And it does feel that way indeed. It is, uh, it is fraught. Um, so here's a series of warnings before we get going. You will disagree with me. If I do my job right, I'm going to make everybody mad. Okay? That it's coming. We can survive. Remember the thing from earlier. Uh, second, I cannot possibly exhaust this entire subject. Sexuality is a huge subject. You may think that I'm leaving something on the table that I needed to talk about. Uh, if you'll give me three hours, we could probably cover it all, but 30 minutes is not going to do it. Um, also, uh, it is such a complicated issue with reams and reams of literature to be aware of. I'm more, I know the Bible. I know how to interpret the Bible and communicate the Bible. I cannot be an expert in all things. Um, also, and this is, this is the part that makes me nervous about today, is that you may find some of the things we talk about triggering, that it may be genuinely painful for you. It is not my intention to open up someone's wounds, okay? It is really important that we hear God's word on this important topic because uh, we are culturally a mess on this, and we need to hear God's word, but... Um, I will add that if I, uh, I will be, sometimes with sensitive sermons, I plan to be at coffee at the point, 8 p.m. on Tuesday. You can come, buy me gelato, and yell at me if you like, uh, or if you have questions of like, hey, this didn't make any sense, or did you ever consider this? Uh, those of you who have done this in the past know I am not brittle, perfectly willing to talk further about these things. All right. Now, if I haven't terrified you yet, let's read the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would speak into your lives in an area where all of us have so much brokenness. I pray that we would feel conviction, not despair, that we would hear hope, not judgment, that we would respond to your invitation to greater flourishing and fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. So I had a friend who was working with a church down in Costa Rica, 
And this church uh, was reaching the prostitutes of San Jose, of which there are quite a few. And, um, and it came out, my friend discovered, that the pastor of this church was having sexual relationships with the very women they were trying to reach. And so when the pastor was confronted, his response was, what's the big deal? And when they asked the women who were in the relationships with them, they responded, what's the big deal? And the guy's wife, yes, he was married, responded, what's the big deal? You see, in Costa Rican cultures, in Costa Rican culture, the, the side chick is an accepted part of sexuality. That's just normal in the culture, and the church was obeying the command of the culture. It was taking its cues on what is ethical sexually from its culture. Is that okay? Is that what we do? Is that how we know what's right and wrong sexually, is whatever our culture says? Well, there's gigantic problems because all of us are doing that to a certain extent. What we believe is right and wrong sexually is heavily informed by the cultures we inhabit. But there's quite a few problems. First of all, culture changes dramatically. Can we think back? Some of you guys were alive in 1965. Think of how sexual ethics in our culture have changed from 1965 to, say, 95. And then how much they changed from 95 to 2005. And from 2005 to 2015. It's dramatically different. Heck, from 2015 to 2021, there are dramatic, dramatic changes. Let me ask you this. Do you think we're done? Have we reached the final version of what's right and wrong sexually? Right? Like, like, you may not know this, but we are on the trajectory of the sexual revolutionaries. There's a number of European philosophers, um, Sigmund Freud among them, Herbert Marcuse, um, Reich, Michel Foucault, who, who they didn't just want to loosen sexual morals, they wanted to do away with them altogether. And their ultimate goal is to get rid of the family because they believed all sexual taboos are oppressive and the family most oppressive of all. Okay, you already hear some of this anti-family language from, uh, ex from the, the extremes of the sexual revolution. So by the time we're getting to the family is evil and all sexual behavior is fine, like, are we still listening to the culture and just saying, yeah, whatever culture says is what we're going to believe is okay, and we're going to find somewhere in the Bible that says it's cool. Is that, is that what we do? No, our culture changes so dramatically. Also, here's the other problem of obeying culture on sexual ethics. Why our culture? Like, why is it that the culture that brought you the Jersey Shore gets to speak authoritatively on sexuality? Like, we're the ones that, first, that have gotten it right, right? Why not 16th century China? Why not 1930s Uganda? Aren't we sensitized yet to cultural chauvinism and colonialism? Why is it that our culture, our cultural moment to be specific, gets to speak authoritatively for the whole world? you realize that most cultures on earth 
do not agree with the West on sexuality. So why our culture? That's a huge problem too, isn't it? And lastly, we cannot take refuge in the idea that sexuality is culturally relative. Some people may say, well, yeah, it's whatever your culture says, the culture that you inhabit. Okay, you know why that's a problem? And we'll get into this further. There are cultures on planet Earth right now and in the past that look at being married to multiple people and saying, that's great. Or that look at relationships between a 30-year-old and a 12-year-old and say, what's wrong with that? Right? Or say, why do we need consent? Right? Non-consensual sexuality is a huge feature in human history in many, many cultures. We cannot say that whatever the culture says is right. There are massive problems with that. And let's acknowledge at the top that there's massive pressure to do whatever culture says, to agree with our culture on sexual ethics. You could get canceled, shamed, fired, ostracized for taking a stance that's different from what culture says to obey, right? So let's, let's acknowledge that, but this is not a new problem. This is a problem that ancient Christians faced as well. Um, the, the, the culture that Paul is addressing in Corinth was part of the Greco-Roman culture, and Corinth was a very Greco-Roman city. They were loose even by Greco-Roman standards, and, um, and their attitude towards sex was that sex is a desire to be fulfilled, period. Anything you want to do is just fine. So things they would have said was okay in ancient Corinth. Prostitution. They were, Corinth was super famous for its thousands of high-quality prostitutes. Okay? In fact, it was considered weird to fall in love with your wife in Greco-Roman society. A wife was there to bear you legitimate children, and prostitutes especially were there for companionship and passion. Right? And that's what they said was right. Adultery was thumbs up all the way around. Do whatever you want. Okay? As long as you're having legitimate children as well, doesn't really matter. Okay? Polyamory, right? being married to multiple people or in relationships with multiple people, they were good with that. Same sex, clearly they were okay with that. That's actually what a platonic relationship is. It does not mean that you're just friends with someone. It means that you have like a like, we get each other, and we also satisfy each other's sexual needs, you know. Um, again, non-consensual was considered completely okay. If you were an enslaved person throughout human history, that's a feature of being enslaved, is that you were there to cater to the sexual desire of someone who was not enslaved. Also, as I said before, they had no problem in ancient Corinth with a 30-year-old guy and an 11-year-old boy. They called that an internship. As literally built into the culture that you would, you would be mentored by an older man and be in a sexual relationship with him. They had no problem with that. And we see that the church at Corinth was just, in many ways, doing whatever the culture said to do. And Paul tells them that we must use our sexuality as 
God intends, not as culture commands. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. You see these quote marks. These are uh, phrases, these are catchphrases that the Corinthians are using to justify their sexual behavior. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial, Paul says. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's not talking about food. It's talking about the body is irrelevant as long as you're spiritually okay. Paul's saying nonsense. Uh, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So his point, and Paul, you're going to see Paul lays out the whole theological rationale the, for, for, that's behind the Christian sexual ethic, that we cannot simply obey what culture commands, but must use sexuality as God intends. So the, the, he starts with kind of a big picture question, and, and we need to also. We have to ask, what is the nature of reality? Is it Zelda or is it Minecraft? This is totally going to make sense. You're going to get this. All right. So you may not play video games, but you've at least heard of Zelda, right? Zelda's like an adventure game. Been around? Sharon's shaking her head. Zelda's an adventure game. You're like an elf or something trying to save a princess. Am I on the beam here? Anybody with Zelda knowledge? Okay. And in Zelda, you've got your swords and your hearts and all that. And right there's a, there's a course you take. There's a certain goal. Uh, there's rules to it. If you if you play within how the game is designed, you get the goal, right? And if you don't, it's game over, right? That's Zelda. It's structured. There's a, there's a path. There's a goal. There's a point. There's a design to it. Minecraft, there are new rules in Minecraft. Those of you who have seen Minecraft, it's sort of just an open frame world, and there's no goal to it. There's no rules to it. It's, it's kind of just a thing. You, you make whatever you want in Minecraft, okay? And the only rule of Minecraft is make it up. So is reality a point and a purpose to be discovered like Zelda? So there's a wrong way to, to do reality. Or is it Minecraft? Is it whatever you want to make it, right? In philosophical terms, is it mimetic or poiaic? See, Zelda Minecraft, way better than that, isn't it? <laughs> and that has a bearing on what we understand sexuality to be. If sexuality is part of a universe to be discovered with a point and a purpose, then there's a right and a wrong way to use it. Following me? If the universe is of a nature that it's whatever you want it to be, then there is no right or wrong way to use it. And Paul orients the Corinthians in sexuality by telling them that God is the foundation of sexuality. When we look at verse 13, Paul says the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. He's saying there's a purpose to your body and sexuality, and it is not what the, the Greek word is porneia. That means anything that's outside of the Christian sexual ethic or the biblical sexual ethic, okay? Okay. It's that sex is created for a purpose. It isn't part of the raw material you do anything you like with. There is a point to it. There's a right and a wrong way to use it. And also, he points them towards the fact that their sexuality is part of redemption as well. Look at verse 14. It says, by his power, 
God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So the, 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 the first theological truth that guides us in how we're supposed to use our sexuality is that we're created for a purpose. Our sexuality is created for a purpose, and it also re- will be redeemed for a purpose. For anyone who follows Jesus, if you're going to come to a conclusion about what's right and wrong sexually, and it must be acknowledged, we come down in different places, you've got to start from sex is made for a purpose, and it's redeemed for a purpose. We cannot say it's whatever we want it to be. Okay, we must use our sexuality as God intends, not as culture commands. Now, does that mean we need to enforce our view on other people? Does that mean we need to go get obnoxious and call people out who don't even share our basic beliefs? Of course not. Of course not. Right? I'm talking, I'm not saying worry about them out there. I'm saying worry about yourself. Saying what the conclusions you come to, how you use your sexuality, not how someone else uses theirs. Now, there is a belief in our culture that if you disagree with someone on their sexuality, that you hate them that you can't truly love and accept someone unless you say, unless you agree with their views on sexuality and their own sexuality. But I, I want to challenge that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wager that very few people in Denver believe that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah and that they need to pray five day, times a day towards Mecca. Most people in Denver do not agree with the central tenets of Islam. Is that fair to say? Does that mean you hate Muslims, for belie- if, if they believe them, right? If you think it's untrue, you hate a person? Not at all. It's the same here. This has nothing to do with hatred and rejection. We are all about love, acceptance, and grace, and also saying that it is true that God is the foundation of our sexuality. Okay? And we cannot use our sexuality simply as culture commands. Now, more specifically, we have to ask the question about what is our body, right? Because sexuality is connected to the body. And the, the answering the question of whose body is it changes moral calculus. I, I recently had the great misfortune of seeing uh, Wonder, Wonder Woman 1984 on a plane. <laughs> it's a very bad movie. And so I'm going to ruin it for all of you. Not that it's possible to ruin a terrible movie, but... Um, so the, y'all saw what Wonder Woman... One, that was requisite viewing, right? We all saw that. So basically, Wonder Woman, y'all know who she is. She had a love interest who dies at the end. Oh, I just ruined Wonder Woman 1 for you, too. I don't care. Um, and, uh, and so Chris Pine, who, let's be honest, is super handsome. He, he's the love interest. He dies in the first one. And at the beginning of 1984 movie, she's very lonely, understandably so, when Chris Pine leaves a sizable hole in one's life. And, um, and so there's like this dumb wish thing, and she makes a wish to get him back, only he doesn't come back, he, and his spirit possesses another dude's body, okay? And they end up having sex, and he goes and like goes on adventures with her, and he's getting shot at and putting this body in harm's way, and I'm sitting there like, wait, huh? How is that okay? That is not your body. It, that dude might totally be up for Gal Gadot, but you didn't ask. It's not your body to do with what you want to do. 
And that's Paul's point as well, is that our bodies are not our own. Our bodies belong to God. First of all, we are united to Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 17. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Okay? So it's not just the spirit that is united to Christ, but the body as well. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So our bodies are not our own. They're first of all united to Jesus. Second, they're sanctuaries of the spirit. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Right? We've, got a, we've got a really important roommate we need to consider, the Holy Spirit. Our body is not something that's totally at our discretion. We are united to Christ, we are sanctuaries of the Spirit, and we are redeemed. Jesus died for your body. Verse 20 says, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, for those of you who understand the Christian faith as your body gets destroyed and your soul goes to heaven, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the resurrection of the body and the soul. Jesus died to redeem all of us. We are not our own. Much of our cultural's moral reasoning on sexuality begins from our bodies being our own. And if we mean that it doesn't belong to other people or the state, I'm with you, okay? I'm all for freedom and individual rights. But saying that in an absolute sense, my body is mine to do with whatever I want. I can punch myself in the face, cut off my arm. It is mine. It is not. It does not belong to you. It belongs to God, united to Christ, sanctuaries of the Spirit, and redeemed by Jesus. We need to use sexuality as God requires, not as culture commands. I know that each and every one of us have issues tied up in our sexual history, those of us who have them. Every single one of us has regrets sexually, where we have not used God's body the way God intended. I want to encourage you, first of all, because I'm in that group too, that Jesus redeems. You are not outside of God's grace if you have not used God's body the way God intended. That that too is something that Jesus redeems. And you may understand yourself to be so sexually broken that there could be no hope for you. I want to say that's a lie from the devil that God restores and brings healing. And if it's not just what you've done, but what's been done to you, that is a cause of great hurt and shame. Jesus can set you free from that. And as a church, we want to make sure that people know about resources. If, you, if you've been the victim of someone using your body as not in the way that God intended. Just off the top, 
There is, start with, there's a website called R-A-N-N, rain.org, that has survivor stories, that has resources you can be directed to. If you don't feel comfortable coming to me, um, you might feel safer with my wife, Sharon. We, we want you guys to know that God will bring you to a place of healing on this stuff, okay? So if we are not to use our bodies, to not, not to use sexuality as culture commands, but as God requires, we have to ask, what is the rule? Like, how do we know the difference? Okay, so there's some good theological grounding that, that you know, we're created for a purpose, that our bodies are not our own, but kind of how do we make the judgment? Um, in our culture, the, our main, the main way we determine if anything is right or wrong is my personal feelings. Okay? I look in my heart. If it feels right, it's right. If it feels wrong, it's wrong. It sounds like this. I need to live my truth. I need to do me. Whatever's going to make me flourish, whatever's going to make me feel the healthiest must be what's right. right. So it's a look inside kind of thing. Here's the problem with that. There's a lot of people who look in their hearts and say, oh, I'm Jeffrey Epstein, and I'm, this feels right to me. I'm not going to really listen to society. I need to be free. I didn't think he was doing anything wrong. There are a number of sexual predators and pedophiles who, who look inside and say, this is right for me. Okay, are we going to say their feelings are invalid? I am. <laughs> I'm also not, never going to say that our personal feelings are the deciding factor of whether anything is right or wrong. We can't go with personal feelings. Say, okay, 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 cool, 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 cool. Personal feelings plus consent. Are we in business now? Okay. Better, <laughs> better, but realize that personal feelings plus consent still allows adultery, polygamy, incest, right? And if you think that all cultures are, are condemn incest, you're wrong. In many cultures, it was seen as the right thing to do, the best thing to do. I know, this is super gross. Okay, so that doesn't work either. Personal feelings and consent, can we add harm? Personal feelings plus consent plus don't do any harm. And again, we're at the same exact place that, that allows adultery, that allows polygamy, that in many, it, it, arguably for people who think this sort of thing is okay, it allows you know, the 30-year-old and 11-year-old dynamic. Because they would say the only harm being done is that society condemns it. What is the Bible's ethic on sexuality? Well, it has nothing to do with hatred. It has nothing to do with fear. And it's also not defined by what it's against. Paul refers to it in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now, what he's referring back to is creation. The Christian sexual ethic begins appropriately with creation. So we're going to look back all the way to Genesis 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, the man said, uh, it, it, we, we see that sex is a powerful blessing. That is, that is the basics. So that sex is a powerful blessing. It, um, verse 23, it says, this, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And so, first of all, the Christian sexual ethic is a, it's sex, that sex is a powerful blessing within marriage. Okay, when human beings are created, sexuality is right in there with their existence. And it is reserved for within marriage and also for covenant intimacy. The, the phrase, one flesh, it sounds like two people are becoming one. Now, that is true physically with sex, and it, it is also true spiritually. You ever wonder why sex is so powerful? It's because God wants marriages to be close. You could call the biblical sexual ethic covenant sexuality. It's within this committed, lifelong, God-blessed, God-ordained uh, relationship of marriage. And it's there to drive intimacy. Okay? It is not just the genital relationship, that the genital relationship is included here, but it is also the relational closeness that's being talked about. So sex is a powerful blessing within marriage for covenant intimacy, and we also see that it is for reproduction. Genesis 127, just before this, it says, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over, and, and so on and so forth. Connected to human beings' purpose. The reason there's a male and a female, the reason they are blessed with sex in this union is that they would fill the earth with God's image. Okay, tracking? So sex is a powerful blessing within marriage for covenant intimacy, and for reproduction. Now, does that mean if you're not trying to get pregnant that sex is wrong? No, uh, of course, there are couples that can't have children and so on and so forth. It is not wrong for them to have sex. But our culture has a total divorce between reproduction and sexuality, right? Where sex is sort of this consumer product, and it's mainly there just as a, like the ancient pagans as a, as a urge to be satisfied, not as, uh, not as connected to human flourishing and reproduction. Now, that is, like I didn't come up with that, that is thousands of years of reflection on what the Bible teaches that I'm sharing with you guys. And some people, uh, some Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ say, and we should completely ignore that sexual ethic. We should go more with our culture's thing of, of kind of whatever, whatever feels good to me and whatever makes me flourish is what I should do. Okay, so those are clearly people who have a, a sort of a lower view of Scripture and, and kind of say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go more salad bar with the Bible. The parts I like, I'm going to eat, and the parts I don't, I'm going to leave. All right, I, while those folks are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that may be your view, and by the way, you're within bounds of being a voting member at Grace and Peace. Yeah? And we can talk about it too. I do not recommend that someone who follows Christ ignore God's word. 
sitting in judgment over God's word is not a position for us to be in. Others would say yes to everything you said. That's, that's how I understand sex too, but should we, shouldn't we include same-sex marriage? Okay, again, that may be your view and you're welcome to hold it and we can talk about it. And I also want to sympathize with the heart that says, I want to love and accept everybody. I do too. But you're going to have to explain to me how that works with the covenant intimacy of the one flesh union for reproduction. Okay? So that's why we would say that that does not fall within the intention of sexuality. And I will challenge you. Whatever conclusion you come to, and I know some of you disagree, that's okay. I'm going to challenge you with this. How does your conclusion reflect what God intends for sexuality, not what our culture commands? We cannot have fear of man that we simply knuckle under and do whatever our culture, culture says. If you have an answer that is different, that is okay. Ground it in God's word, okay? Now, for some of you, you say, well, I'm single and I'm probably going to stay single. Does that mean I can't be fulfilled as a human being? I want to challenge this idea that if you're not sexually fulfilled, you're not a flourishing person. Because our culture shrieks that at, at us, right? Guys, who was the one flourishing human being in human history? It is our Lord Jesus, is it not? He was single and celibate his entire life and flourished more than anyone ever has. The belief that if you're not being sexually satisfied, that you cannot flourish as a human being is a lie. We must use our sexuality as God intends, not as culture commands, because God's reality is the foundation of sexuality. Our bodies are not ours, and sex is a powerful blessing from God. This is not about God killing our joy, right? It's about saying he gave us something precious. We need to use it the way he intended. Expensive things have a very endangered existence at my house. I have five kids. And most things are in storage of that description. The one exception is for, for, from my days when I was a professional musician, I still have like a nice Gibson acoustic, right? It's like a $2,000 guitar. I, I had a sponsorship back then. I could afford it. And one day, I saw this guitar positioned just so beneath the back of our couch. And I saw a little toddler emerge over the top. And this toddler had the outstanding plan of using my guitar for the purpose of a trampoline. <laughs> now, needless to say, I, you know, I dove for it. No! <laughs> Is it because I didn't want my kid to enjoy life? Is it because I didn't want my kid to have fun? No. I hope that kid will grow up and play that guitar, right? I hope that they are going to use that, that beautiful guitar for its intended purpose, okay? God is not trying to bum us out. He's, he's saying, 
this is a special gift that you are given. Use it as I have intended. Please pray with me.